Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science. We'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. This is Dr. Goldcamp. So today, this episode is going to be the last episode on COVID, which is a topic that I really didn't want to cover until we got it. And then I realized, you know, why shouldn't we talk about our experience and then do a little uh, basic, hopefully unprejudicial research just on some of the broader, perhaps more interesting topics. So what I wanted to go over today was some of the ideas that is there such a thing as a predisposing factors or a predisposition to getting COVID? I'm going to push aside the whole idea of metabolic health. That's been talked about. I've covered it on past episodes. We know that's a thing. So I'm not going to get into that. So metabolic health would basically mean, long story short, anybody who is severely overweight, is diabetic, and so on and so forth, they have a real stress, pressure on their mitochondria to perform, and it's not doing very well. And it's kind of accumulated over time. I'm I'm not going to go any more to it than that, because that has a lot of different... If you look up diabetes, if you look up elevated insulin, elevated glucose, and all these things, you'll see that they in themselves have a lot of associated comorbidities. And it's almost too easy to say, oh, that's, that's the answer. And that's initially what all the news was about. Hey, look who's ever getting sick. Well, guess what? Every flu has that same association. So it's not a COVID-19 association exclusively. It's a flu association. So the comorbidities of people who die from the flu are pretty much ranked in the same order as they are with the COVID-19 because it's a flu. Influenza, same thing. So that's been covered And that's really a whole different track. And yes, it's true, but it's no longer interesting for me and it's not going to be on this particular podcast. There are other ideas there that are not really supported because nobody does research on this. Nobody does research on this because the money's not on these particular topics. However, I thought you should know about them and I thought that you would probably think that they would be pretty interesting to think about. So, okay, let me go over some of them You probably have never heard of blood type in association with COVID. And specifically now we're talking about COVID-19. So if you were to, and I come at this, hopefully some of you have heard about blood type diet and then eat right for your type. These are all topics that actually are very big in Japan. And it came 
initially was the work of uh, Peter Diodamo, a naturopathic doctor who is trained in Germany, senior, who practiced in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He's, I think he died uh, about 10 years or 10 or 15 years ago. And his son, Peter Jr., who uh, works, I, I believe, in Greenwich, Connecticut, and so on. And he now, 20 or 30 years ago, picked up the reins from his father and came out with a series of books, Eat Right for Your Type, which is your blood type. And when we were in medical school, we thought, wow, this is really interesting. Unfortunately, it didn't work for me. So it works for a lot of people. I've been giving a lot of talks and you find afterwards people go, have you heard about Eat Right for Your Type? And I'll say, yes, I have. And he goes, oh, it really has worked for me a lot. And I ask, well, what was your diet like before you, you know, you did this? So I'm not taking credit away from Eat Right from Your Type, which is a very specific dietary structure for each blood type. And so blood types are, are you A, are you B, are you AB, or are you O? And in addition to that, you look at rhesus positive or, or negative, and the R comes from the rhesus monkey. That's where it was tested. So you have a positive, a negative, you know, right on through the whole rank. And so of that, this concept that you've heard about, feel free to Google it. And there's not a lot of papers on that. There's this, who's going to spend their time? But it, it would be interesting if these factors were correlated. You know, there's enough people who have had COVID-19 by now. Certainly, if you can look at the death, who have died and what are, the, are there any correlations? And not much of that really is being done other than the obvious of metabolic health. That is the things we've already talked about. So you can go a little more nuanced. We're hearing about a vitamin D deficiency. There's a greater vitamin D deficiency with those who experience the worst symptomology of COVID-19. And so that's why people are worried about vitamin D. But there's not a lot of correlations in terms of either a nutrient deficiencies or genetic predispositions. It's kind of a crapshoot. However, the topics are out there. So if you go into Google and you say blood type and COVID, you will find that on that list of possible predisposing factors, the blood type would be a positive. A positive happens to be my blood type. It's not Judy's blood type. I have really no opinion. I find that's interesting, but there's just not a lot of evidence to sort of point in that direction. It's like, well, uh, okay. So it's like a lot of other things. You can float the idea, but until you get the money to do an actual study or to cull through all the data, it's just an idea. But that is an idea out there that there's a predisposition. Also, the least associated blood type with, and this is loosely correlated, is uh, O negative. So the universal donor is the least likely supposedly, to get COVID. And the most likely to get COVID on a per blood type basis is a positive. So if you're a positive like me, is there anything you can do? I I guess I would pay more attention to the supplements I'm taking until this whole thing passes over us. I wouldn't get too worried about it, but that's just an idea. Others' ideas are certainly the elevated insulin, which is secondary or caused by consistent and sustained elevated glucose. That kind of goes hand in hand. And that also goes along with poor metabolic health. However, if you know, and you know enough about yourself to go out and get your own insulin test, and you're worried about, you may not be overweight, but you may have these predisposing factors. So elevated insulin, elevated glucose, check it out. You should get those done. If I've said nothing else a thousand times over the last three years, it was about go out and get your fasting blood glucose levels done and your 
together with your insulin and your CRP, which is an inflammatory marker. CRP would be another blood test that I would guess would probably not be a predisposing factor, but once you start coming down and start experiencing your symptomology of COVID, your inflammation is going to go up. And then the question is to everybody how to bring your inflammation down and keep you from feeling miserable. And that's what we've talked about in the last podcast. Moving on to other things, here's some other issues that are in the works. Because as you remember, we talked about bacterial infection, high fever, spikes fever. You fast, in essence, you not like you're you're thinking of fasting. You don't feed a fever. In that sense, you starve a fever. I went through the terminology before. And yet, if you have a viral infection, which is a lower-grade fever, we talked about CBC and your white blood cell count and so on, is that that's one that actually benefits from glucose. I'm not saying flood your system with glucose, but eating versus not eating is a big deal. The not eating comes naturally. When you're feeling terrible, you don't want to eat. So when you have a low-grade fever and flu, you still feel terrible, and you tend not to want to eat, but you have a greater appetite than otherwise. So there is that aspect. So along with the idea of having a virus and being able to deliver some sugar to your immune system, this is what we're talking about, is that there are people that have a condition called reactive hypoglycemia, which means that usually after a meal, so I'm giving you the definition of this diagnosis, after a meal, they get low blood sugar. And they get extraordinary low blood sugar. And they feel terrible. And so what is that about? Well, nothing is just one thing. It comes back to glucagon. Can these people, so they've eaten, let's say they've, we don't know what they've eaten. It's a too general of a statement, which is unfortunate. There's not lots and lots and lots of research on this, but there's enough to indicate that it has to do with, they can get their blood sugar up by the foods they eat, carbs, refined carbs, all the things you're not supposed to eat, right? But they can't create a very normal blood sugar by gluconeogenesis via their own supplies. So they're kind of more reliant, and whether they train their systems into being totally reliant on external sources of glucose, carbs, refined carbs, or not, it's hard to say. That's all behind them. There's not any documentation on that. But we do know that they have lower blood sugars, and the association and correlation is with lowered glucagon in a glucagon that tends not to jump up and do its job when it's supposed to. So when you're not eating, glucagon is the thing that says, I'll make blood sugar for you. I'll go to the liver and we'll throw together some, we'll throw together some lunch for you. We'll throw together some amino acids and make our glucose. We've talked about this in past episodes for sure. So that's interesting. So people who have reactive hypoglycemia would have a more difficult time with the virus because they can't generate that glucose easily. So they're going to have to be more dependent on the foods they eat to make them feel a little better. So now I want to talk about, switch to something. I did a little research on, you know, we hear a lot about Sweden, uh, Sweden's numbers right now, and they are looking fine. That is, they're not masking, you know, they're doing very moderate social distancing. They're supposed to be the poster child for how we should have all treated the virus. Hit it straight on, get the herd immunity, move on, get back to an open economy, and let's get moving kind of thing. 
I don't know about that. So I just went back to look at numbers and I looked at sort of neutral numbers. That is, I went on to Google and I said, you know, what were incidences of COVID by death and incidents both in Sweden and Norway and Denmark? Could have done Finland as well. I did, but I didn't do a graph on it. And I compared them. So let's review. So Sweden has a population of about just under 10 million people, whereas Denmark is about 5 million and some change, and Norway is 5 million and some change, and Finland's 5 million and some change. So that's sort of the population to population comparison. In terms of cases, Sweden had about 100,000, specifically 97 and change, but we'll call it 100,000, and they had about 6,000 deaths. This is up until October 1st, so not long ago. So that comes out to be about, so if you do total deaths over total cases, it's 6%. Norway, which I said has a population of about a little over 5 million, had 15,000 cases and 275 deaths. That's a 1.8%. So if you do total deaths over total cases, 1.8%. So it's less than one-third the outcome. They've been heavy into social distancing, heavy into wearing masks, heavy into uh, let's take this seriously. To the point that, and I lived there for a couple of years, not that I know what the current situation is, but I am in touch with people who live there and we PM back and forth and talk to each other back and forth, is that if one is known, if one knows that they have COVID and they go to a party or they go to a function, uh, they can be arrested. I don't know what they what arrested for how long, or but it, it is a, a crime. In essence, you've weaponized yourself. Uh, it's pretty severe. That's how severely they're taking it. So just looking at the numbers, I'm trying not to make this political. I'm saying, look at, at these numbers and what does that mean? This is such, this is like one more issue, by the way, you can't talk about in these particular numbers. People go, well, what about people dying from all these other things? I'm not talking about people dying from all those other things. I'm talking about just looking at these numbers. It's really hard to talk uh, on Facebook or any other place without suddenly it turning into something else. So Norway is 2%. Now let's look at Denmark. Denmark has about the same population within 100,000, same size population as Norway, obviously over a smaller geography. And they had twice the number of cases of Norway. They they had about 32,000. And they had only 667 deaths. So that turns out to be about 2%. So about the same percent of total deaths over total cases as Norway did. And and Finland's the same. So that's interesting. And, you know, yet there's still social distancing and so on and so forth. So when you compare, if I was to walk into Norway now, walk into Denmark now, walk into Finland now, you'd see Finland, Denmark is actually getting to be much more open now, but it has some cases coming back. Whereas when you look at what's going on in Sweden now, it is, it, they're, they're zero, basically, hardly any. Since October 6th, there's been one case. So it's very flatlined, which is, I say that in a good way. And so they're, that's why they're considered the poster child. It's like, wow, whatever they did, they got to the right place and now they can be on functioning and they're all good. So the assumption is they've acquired herd immunity. That is, everybody has that kind of immunity and or that the actual virus that is circulating within Sweden has attenuated. It's become weaker and weaker and weaker, and that doesn't bother anybody, which both of those things are what happens in the course of any flu season. The virus attenuates, gets weaker, and the population generally gets acquires a herd immunity. So 
in the end, people don't get affected as time goes by. And it looks like Sweden has achieved that. But they have had one, they've had more deaths by comparison. So I'm only looking at Scandinavia because they have a similar population. I know they all had brought in refugees, so they're no longer a a monolithic population, given that. But they have more in common than other parts of the world in terms of neighborly states. So that's why the comparison is really pretty interesting to look at. Norway really doesn't have much in the way of cases. It goes up, you know, it's not a rise, it's just a, a blips as it goes th- through. Denmark is having some of its, you know, come back a little bit on very low numbers. It's just interesting to see that what are we looking at? So when I look at Sweden now, my conclusions are now that, well, they really paid a big price. They paid roughly 6,000 people died for them to give herd immunity versus Norway just had 227 deaths due to uh, COVID and Denmark was 667. So I'd say that there's a pattern. I'm not trying to make it political. There's no right or wrong. They chose different paths. Maybe Sweden didn't choose anything. They just let it happen. So I don't know how conscious or unconscious, how social this was or not social, how governmentally enforced it was or not. It's just that it's interesting. What it takes to get to herd immunity is open the doors and let everybody get sick and some will die and some will pick up the immunity and pass it on. That looks like that's what the lesson is. So when you get to much larger population and much larger countries like the United States, it's almost impossible to be able to implement one or the other. It's as we're knowing, it's impossible to go through a stringent lockdown without and having everybody obey. At the same time, it's unreasonable if we're looking at these same numbers could be reproduced in the United States, you know, just let everybody get it and see what happens. I think it's tending towards more that way that people are getting so tired of hearing about COVID and so on and so forth. And they think that nothing else is being reported. And I guess that's what they hear, but it's going to run its course one way or the other. And this is what the the first pandemic did. And people very much resented, I don't know if they called it social distancing then, but they had masks and many people resisted the masks. It was a tough time. And it put the country into a severe depression uh, post COVID. And this is before the roaring 20s, if you can imagine. So it was World War I came back. You had the, the first pandemic and that was horrible. And that left a very big depression. So as I understand it, the government's saying, what can we do to avoid that part, the depression part? It's not black or white. But I just thought it was interesting. I wanted to go back and saying, so what What did Sweden do that was so great? And well, they're in a great place right now and everybody's enviable that we all, all want to be Sweden. But looking back, I don't think we all wanted to have a 6% total deaths over total cases. So there you go. I hope that was worth listening to. It was made my eyes open saying, hmm, whether they did it intentionally or not, that's where they got to and now they're in a good place. So I am going to leave those topics behind now and saying, at this point, it's on you to, you know, these questions that come up in the Facebook group of people who don't really read of what's printed there, things like hydroxychloroquine, these are things that reduce your symptomology. They are not vaccines. They do not prevent you from getting the flu. All these things are about reducing your symptomology. 
So your immune system isn't something that's in a steady state. Your immune system is so clever that when it needs to, it rises up to fight whatever it has to fight. And then it goes back to, you know, uh, goes back to sleep in a sense. And so that's what a raging fever is. It's your immune system fighting something. It rises up. And you can measure that in terms of a very high white blood count. And you can differentiate between viral and bacterial. And you can even look into fungal, but that's not the issue right now that we're looking at. So this is quick and dirty. I hope it was worth listening to. It's just that there are possibly different predispositions that we have. And I thought you would appreciate looking how some cultures have decided to respond to the pandemic and or not respond to the pandemic and what their results have been. It's not a right or wrong. It's not political. I don't have, I live where I live and I do the best that I can. And I'm trying to support anybody out there since we got COVID to say, hey, here's what we're doing. This might help you to have a better outcome should you be exposed to and should you start coming down with the symptomology, the symptoms of getting COVID. There's much you can do, and I hope you use some of this. So take care. Goodbye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they're overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.